You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Anna Quinlan. This program originally aired in 2012. Thank you all. What a nice welcome. It's so nice to be here in this beautiful venue. Books begin in a variety of ways. I don't mean the way books begin, like call me Ishmael, or it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in one of a wife, (laughs) although those are very good beginnings. (laughs) I mean the way books begin inside writers. With a novel, for example, a book frequently begins for me with a theme and over time with a protagonist so that as I'm power walking in the morning along the Hudson River or making dinner, the edges of a character become sharper and sharper and sharper for me, a little like the way Polaroids used to develop until I can see how they look and and how many brothers and sisters they have and what they do for a living and all the rest. But a nonfiction book begins quite differently, sometimes in a chance remark that you hear at a dinner party, sometimes in a story that you read in the newspaper. And in the case of this new book, which is a memoir about aging, lots of candles, plenty of cake, in two ways. The first came about when I was preparing to write my final column for Newsweek magazine, in which I wanted to say that the baby boom generation with their determination not to leave the stage, had created a kind of a bottleneck in the workplace for younger people. And that I thought the pundit class in America was too white, too gray, and too male, and that while I did not conform to the last category, I felt that I wanted younger, more polyglot voices out there. And in the course of researching that column, I discovered something that I found quite astonishing. That the year I was born, 1952, the average life expectancy of an American was 68. See, I always get that same reaction. That's exactly how I felt. Because now that we assume that people live to what in fact is in general an average life expectancy of 80, 68 seems so young. It seems as though we gained an entire stage of life just during my lifetime. And I realized that was something I was really interested in exploring. But the second thing that really began um, the business of writing this book was contained in an exchange I had with my daughter and some subsequent investigation that I did. And that's a section of the book that I'd like to share with you tonight before Virginia and I talk on stage. We can all do simple math, yet realizing you've become a person of a certain age comes on suddenly, an incongruous surprise. It came to me full force on a muddy day in July when a tornado struck our house in Pennsylvania. The dogs pressed against the back of my legs as I made a sandwich in the kitchen, apparently sensing something coming several minutes before I did. Then the wind roared through with a freight train sound and the trees bowed down outside the window. In an instant, the trees had disappeared, obscured by thick gray air flecked with black, like ominous confetti. In the time it took to assemble lunch, it was, then was not. All that was left was the afterward, 
Most of the big trees closest to the house were gone. Their root balls upended into the air, as though the hand of God had wiped the landscape and ordered us to try again. The pond was filled with downed cedars and enormous willow branches. There was no power and no water, but the house was untouched except for a single cracked chimney cap. I sent all three of the children messages. Chris was at a German heavy metal festival and didn't get his for days. <laughs> Quinn was in the New York apartment and wrote back immediately, concerned about whether he should come post haste. But Maria left her university summer school class early and called, sobbing. I'm just afraid of history repeating itself, said my daughter, who knows that my own mother died when I was still in college. And without thinking, I responded, Oh, honey, I'm too old to die young now. <laughs> Sometimes things pop out of your mouth that amount to an epiphany, even if they sound like bad country western songs. <laughs> this was one of those things. I am no longer young and certainly not elderly. I am past the midpoint of my life. I am at a good point in my life. Am I old? Define your terms. One afternoon I went a little ballistic when I read a newspaper story that described an elderly couple fending off a burglar. The woman involved was 68. <laughs> How is that elderly, I ranted. That's not elderly. 68 is not elderly. After the rant, silence, and then one of my children said, Mom, that's elderly. <laughs> it is, said another. <laughs> Definitely, said the third. <laughs> Nonsense, I thought, and to prove it, I went to various journalism sites and writing style books to nail down the cutoff point for elderly. <laughs> the precise definition of an old person or an older one. It seems that old is a moving target. Some gerontologists divide us into the young old, ages 55 to 74, and the old old, over 75. In a survey done by the Pew Research Center, most people said old age begins at 68. But most people over the age of 65 thought it began at 75. <laughs> when I searched my own clippings over the course of a long career in journalism for the word elderly, I discovered to my horror that I had used it with casual regularity. <laughs> there were the elderly men on the boardwalk in Coney Island, the elderly women in the beauty parlors of Flatbush, and then Here's the important thing. The number of uses of the word elderly in my copy began to dwindle, and then they died. <laughs> As I aged, elderly seemed more and more pejorative, and my definition of what constituted elderly shifted upward. In other words, old is wherever you haven't gotten to yet. <laughs> It's all relative the way it was when I got pregnant for the first time at 31 and everyone in our two families thought I'd left it rather late 
and everyone in our urban friendship circle thought I was rushing into it. <laughs> when I mentioned writing about aging, women in their 70s and 80s brushed me off. Oh, you're too young to write about the subject. The truth is I feel young. I certainly feel a good deal younger than the older people of my past. Our grandmothers at 60 and my friends and I at the same age, we might as well be talking about different species in the way we dress, talk, work, exercise, plan, in the way we live. When people live to 65, 60 was old. When they live to be 80, 60 is something else. We're just not sure what yet. A friend told me she thought it was summed up in the message inside a birthday card she got from her mother. After the Middle Ages comes the Renaissance. <laughs> it's too late to rehabilitate the words old and elderly, especially in this age of perpetual youth, so we've redefined them, often redefined them out of existence. We don't even have a name for this time of our lives or a name that seems to work. Second adulthood, one writer called it. The third chapter says another. Late middle age, later age. 60 is the new 40, as I'm sure you've heard. And you're only as young as you feel, and everyone feels surprised younger than they actually happen to be. My hairdresser has this theory about what she calls resting hair rate. It's similar to your resting heart rate, except that it means that no matter what you do to your hair, it will resolve itself into some general style that is its natural fallback position. I personally believe in a resting weight rate. That is, if you're exercising pretty regularly and eating like a normal person, there is some weight that your body will normally adopt. So maybe there's a resting age rate. That is the age you naturally feel. According to the Pew study, most adults over 50 feel at least 10 years younger than their actual age. On his 70th birthday, Ringo Starr told an interviewer, as far as I'm concerned, in my head, I'm 24. If you woke me from a sound sleep and shouted, how old are you? I suspect I'd mutter, 41. It's interesting for me to consider that that's my resting age rate, and then to compare that moment in my life to this one. My life was fine at 41. I had published a novel, was writing a newspaper column, had three children in all-day school for the first time. Every mother will understand that that last clause should come first in that sentence. <laughs> I had just started to work out for the first time in my life, which turned out to be good, and I occasionally found myself squinting at my needlepoint or my book, which turned out to be not so good. I had most of the friends I have today and the same husband. My life was a bit crazy, it's true. Sometimes I had to edit a column while the kids were having dinner, which meant that there were too many slapdash meals and run-on sentences. Sometimes I had to interrupt dinner to take calls. I remember the day our son Christopher came downstairs and said, some man just called on your office phone, but I told him you couldn't talk because you were making dinner. <laughs> that man was Jesse Jackson. 
Nearly two decades later, I still work at home, but the children no longer live here, although their rooms are preserved as shrines, <laughs> complete with old posters and artwork and high school course notes crammed in the desk drawers. I've published a number of novels, had another column but gave it up, have added a few friends despite my insistence that I don't have room in my life for more friends. If you woke me up from a sound sleep and shouted, how's 60 looking, I would murmur, good, really good. You feel like everyone's friend, I guess. All day today, I was sending my friends text messages of smart things you say in your book, which I guess is today's version of sticking it up on the refrigerator. It works for me. <laughs> Whatever way you do it, it works for me. What is it I think you think about your writing that connects with people in that kind of fridge-worthy way? I think I'm really, really average. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I really do. I, I mean, I do have some facility, one would hope so, after all these years of putting things into words. But I think my life and the things that matter to me and the things that I care about are like those of millions and millions of other people and that, that that connects because at some level they feel as though we're all doing the same things at the same time and I'm just obliged to put it down on paper. Well, they're very personal, the books, the nonfiction books in your column and also your novels, but not confessional. And I wonder if that was a sort of decision, well, let's say not confessional in that kind of post-Oprah way. Was that a decision of yours, that there's only so far that I'm going to go, or was it just organic? I think there was a lot of that when I was doing life in the 30s. First mm -hmm. of all, because nobody was really doing a column like that at the time that I started doing it. And second of all, my sons were three and one at the time. And I just had this constant vision of them 15 or 20 years later looking at something I'd written and being appalled by it. <laughs> so I drew bright lines for myself and then I said to my husband, any column I write about you or the kids or our family, I'm going to give to you first. And I want either a straight up or a straight down. In other words, I don't want to nibble around the edges. Oh, you don't like this? Well, what if I change this paragraph and take out this quote and that kind of thing? You know, if you don't want it, it'll go. I mean, you know, in the battle between family and prose, family always wins. And um, the great thing is that he never, um, he never KO'd anything. But I think in part that was because I'd already unconsciously begun to protect the things that I needed to protect for the sake of the family. So Maria saw in this book that you uh, wrote about what kind of underwear she wears? <laughs> you know, no one reads my books until they are completely locked down, mm -hmm. except for my agent and my editor. My closest friend doesn't, my husband doesn't, my kids don't, until it's a final draft. Uh, it's done. Um, but then I give it to all of those people. And Maria called me and said, this is the best thing you've ever done. Mm. And having your daughter say something like that to you, wow, it just really, you know, makes it. But the other thing that was so great about it was when I was working on this book, I sort of thought it was for a woman of a certain age. Mm. I mean, I'm turning 60 in July. I thought it would tap into those feelings about aging that so many of us have. 
I really didn't imagine that 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds would respond to it. And the truth is they really have kind of viscerally because at some level they see it as a roadmap for what's to come. And I found that so gratifying, but most gratifying of all from my first reader who happened to be my daughter. Well, you do speak a lot to colleges, um, and I, I wonder about that. A lot of young women who are 22, 23, 24, college-age women, would never call themselves feminists. The word has been, um, it's pejorative to many, many people. And I wonder if your daughter, would she call herself a feminist? My daughter would absolutely call herself a feminist, or she would never be allowed to use a family credit card again as long as she lives. But, you know, I want to say something about that because, as I say in the book, words are so important. And you cannot let the words that matter to you be hijacked by people who are hostile to you. So let me go through a couple of them, okay? I am not a progressive. I am a liberal. Progressive is an honorable term, but suddenly we're all using it because the right wing has muddied up liberal. Liberal is a tradition that gave us social security. Liberal is a tradition that gave us the civil rights movement. I'm proud to be a liberal. I'm proud to have been... I'm proud to have been an affirmative action hire at the New York Times when I was a young woman. And I'm so proud to be a feminist because feminism has changed this country for the better radically. Well, we have a question here from a fellow Barnard alum, and my education there inspired me to find my voice as a young feminist. What do you think is the most pressing issue that my generation of feminists needs to promote? I think that we have done so much work out in the world to make the world more egalitarian. Um, But it seems to me that the place where the next battle has to take place is a more difficult one, and that's at home. I mean, over and over again, we see data and we hear anecdotally that even when both members of a couple work, the woman does much, much more of the domestic responsibilities. And that's just got to change. It's one of the reasons why we haven't reached the highest ranks, because women spend so much time looking over their shoulder in terms of the home, the kids, the family, and all the rest. We need really egalitarian family life now. You know, I... As I say in the book, I go to colleges and universities, and I'm always asked about balancing work and family. And in all these years, I've never been asked that question by a young man. And on the day that I am, I will know that something really important has finally changed. So many people miss your columns. And uh, ask, would you ever consider doing a column on current events like you used to do for Newsweek? And adds, please. (laughs) It's so nice to hear that, but I I sort of feel like I've always cycled through various roles in my life. I mean, for years I was a reporter, Mm -hmm. and I loved doing that. It's such a great job. And then I was a columnist, and I loved doing that, and I morphed into being a novelist. And um, 
I, never, I never really feel the urge to go back whole hog. And so I can't imagine being a columnist again. But I, I think I said that after I left the New York Times in 1995. And then Newsweek made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And, and you know, I, I, I sometimes say I, I started the Newsweek column at the end of, of 2000. And boy, as a lifelong journalist, if September 11th, 2001 had come around and I hadn't had an outlet, I would have gone out of my mind. I probably would have just marched into a newsroom and offered my services. So being able to write, you know, at that moment was just a great gift for me. So I never say never about anything. Try to hang loose. That's something I learned as a mother. But I don't anticipate doing a column again. The medium today does also mean that you have to, you know, be very prolific. The 24-7 news cycle is right with you. And and popularity is often measured in page views, pushing this boundary to be edgy or more humorous. Would you, would you want to be doing that? I'm pretty confident about my page view capacity. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I'd want to work as hard as it sometimes takes to be a columnist. You know, Scotty Reston, who was a columnist and then an editor at the New York Times, once said that doing a column is like standing under a windmill. A blade hits you in the head and you think, oh, thank God, that's over. And you look up and there's another one on the way down. <laughs> and, and I don't really miss that particular feeling. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a way in which your whole mind is different when you're a columnist, that you never see anything as just a thing. It's all grist for the mill. I mean, when I was doing Life in the 30s, on occasion, I would turn to a four-year-old and say, can I use that? <laughs> and that's a weird, weird way to be. So I, I write this column about how I'm going back to an unexamined life because now I have three children. I'm returning home. And I put a dummy lead on it. And the dummy lead says, her name is Maria. She was born on Tuesday. Tuesday's child is fair of face. She, I don't know about that, but she has a full head of black hair and long, very graceful fingers. And then I go into the rest of the column and I say to them, I'll call from the hospital after I have the baby and we'll sub out the lead and put in the real lead. And I told them that on a Tuesday morning and I went to the doctor and the doctor said to me, you're seven centimeters dilated and if you don't go into labor by eight o'clock tonight, I want you to meet me at the hospital. So I met him at the hospital, and the next day I called the office and said, um, I had the baby, the lead stands as written. Mm. Everything I'd made up turned out to be true, which was so amazing to me, and it feels like, I, I don't know, some weird kind of psychic channeling, which I don't believe in, but... <laughs> But that's what it felt like. <laughs> well, your love for your children and your relationship with your children comes across so beautifully in, in your work. And so many people look to you, I think, as an ally in motherhood and also as an advisor. So I was shocked to read that you considered having your tubes tied when you were in your 20s. I did. And obviously, the doctor wouldn't do it. But why? Why didn't you want to have children? Oh, it was very simple. And, and you know, I think even an amateur psychologist could have figured it out. During the year that I was 19, for 
I left college, and during half of that year, I took care of my mother, who had stage four ovarian cancer, and then after she died, I went back to work as a city desk clerk at the New Brunswick, New Jersey Home News, where I had worked before as a copy girl, and I took care of my four younger siblings, um, who had reached what anyone would conclude was the very worst moment in their life at age 17, 15, 12, and my sister was nine. So it was a very, very difficult time for all of us. I mean, I was a kind of a surrogate mother, which is not a comfortable role for a sibling to play. I wasn't good at it. I did it with very bad grace. I tried to combine it with working out in the world. I just found it unbelievably onerous. And when I was done, I thought, that's not for me. And then one day, when I was 30, I woke up and said, let's have a baby. <laughs> it was very disconcerting for my husband, who had imagine. gotten used to the idea that we weren't having children. But um, <laughs> he came around, and now he's, he, you know, it's the greatest. You say that your father demanded that you drop out of school and come and take care of your mom and the family. I, I couldn't imagine what that conversation must have been like. What, do you remember it? Do it you? wasn't a conversation. Yeah. It was a directive. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that was sort of, as I said, I'm from an Irish Catholic family. That was pretty commonplace. I mean, at least if, if it had been a generation or two before, I would have been asked to sacrifice my entire life. Never go back to college, never marry, you know, be the housekeeper, the homemaker forevermore. As it was, I hired a housekeeper and fled the jurisdiction. What did you learn from your mother in those final months? I'm not sure it was in those final months. I think I learned more from my mother once I had children myself which is that I realized that she had a real gift for unconditional love and that I thought that was commonplace at the time and I eventually realized that it was quite rare. And every morning I got up and tried to be as much like my mother to my kids as I possibly could, which was really a challenge given that I had this rich work life and that our characters were actually quite different. Mm -hmm. but. I, I really, I really, really tried to do that. But what I learned during those last few months was, and I wrote this in a short guide to a happy life. I mean, people are so casual about life. Oh, you know, I'm so tired. Things are such a drag. I have to do this. I've been asked to do that. But when you watch someone who's terminally ill holding on with their fingernails to a really average, ordinary, commonplace life, the only thing you can conclude from that is that a really average, ordinary, commonplace life is the best thing going. And that you better remember that the rest of yours. And it's something that lodged deep within me and that has never left me. That's something that made me feel sort of guilty, a realization that you wrote about that so many of us want to distance ourselves from our mothers and begin to think that the things that they did in their lives were below us, you know, beneath us, that they were sort of, you know, boring. They led boring lives and how arrogant that is. And the thing that really struck me is that 
that is me being sexist. That's my sexual prejudice against women of that age. Well, that's absolutely true. And it's, I think it was also way bumped up with women of our generation yeah. because given second wave feminism and suddenly all these doors that opened and all these opportunities that we had that women before us hadn't had, we even were more full of ourselves about this. Okay, you know, oh, medicine? Oh, doctor, not nurse. Oh, natural childbirth. Oh, breast is best. Oh, I'm making my own baby food. It's a miracle that one of them didn't just sock us. And then you go back, there's this wonderful um, memoir that I chose for a list of three memoirs for the Barnes & Noble Review called Wait For Me by Deborah Mitford, the Duchess of Devonshire, who obviously, you know, grew up in this very privileged English environment and lives in this astonishing manor house. And she just has a short paragraph where she delineates all of the young men in her life to whom she was related by birth or marriage or who were friends of hers growing up who were killed during the First World War. And the list is extremely long. And she doesn't add any bathos to it. She just describes, you know, Andrew's cousin, my cousin, my... And, and when you get to the end of it, you think, how dare we condescend to those women? How dare we? I mean, the lives they lived under much more difficult circumstances than our own, we should learn what they have to teach us. And when you write about that interplay between the generations, you said, I think it was the, the canyon dividing the generations, especially between women, is much deeper. Why so much deeper? I think harsh judgment is the hallmark of being female when we're young. Mm -hmm. One of the great mysteries to me is I had to live through seventh and eighth grade all over again with my daughter. <laughs> and at one point she said to me, Mommy, I don't know if I ever want to have a daughter because I'm not sure I could get through eighth grade without. <laughs> and one of the great mysteries to me is how girls can be so savage to one another when they're young, and yet women friends are the bedrock of our lives as we grow older. And I think part of it is that women face such harsh judgment from the outside world that at a certain point, out of fear, they turn it on one another. And it makes it very difficult for us to see what older women have to teach us, and also for older women to be tolerant of the foibles of the young. You know, as I say in the book, this one young woman said to me at a college, you know, we're not going to make the same mistakes that your generation made. We're not going to wait too long to have our kids. We're going to take care of our kids ourselves and not have to worry about this nanny situation and then go back to work later. We're going to have better balance in our life. We're not going to make the same mistakes that your generation made. And you know what? I thought to myself, that's right. You're not. You're going to make different mistakes. <laughs> Well, you said that you're getting some comfort with that, hearing those kind of, hearing young women say that they're choosing kids over career. But later, I think it said something like that this is a way of controverting the women's movement. Well, I think the entire culture tries to controvert the women's movement all the time. I mean, you know, it can't be any accident that suddenly we have unparalleled freedom at a time when 
advertising and television tell young women that they're supposed to look like bobblehead dolls and weigh 90 pounds. <laughs> that is no accident at all. Um, but I do think that each generation learns from the one before and they listen. And I think that's so important to remember. If we talk about motherhood as though it's the Stations of the Cross, If we talk all the time about how difficult it is and how time-consuming and we never talk about the joy, what do they take away from that about having children? And if they've listened for their entire lives to the endless drumbeat of stress and infertility and divorce, what do they take away from that? Do they take away from that you shouldn't work quite so hard? You really need to work doubly hard at marriage. You probably shouldn't wait to have your kids. Maybe they do. Now, as I said when I said you'll make different mistakes, you know, a young woman who says to me, I'm going to take care of, of my own kids, I say to her, you know what? I was more or less a full-time stay-at-home mom, which is eminently possible when you're a writer mm. in a way that it's not when, say, you're a surgeon or a trial lawyer. But let me tell you something about taking care of your kids. There's two parts to taking care of your kids. One is making them PB&J and reading them stories after bath at night. And the other is being able to keep a roof over their head. Because men leave and men lose their jobs and sometimes men die. And if any of that happens and you can't pay for the rent, then you're not taking care of your kids. So don't make the mistake, don't make the female mistake of thinking taking care means just staying home. Taking care may mean staying home. It also means being able to pay for your home. The trend seems to, however, be um, manic motherhood now. You know, making sure that your kid speaks Mandarin by the time they're three. And I wonder if you were writing a column now about motherhood, would you be criticizing that? What would that feel like to well, you? I wouldn't be criticizing ex exactly, and I, I wrote a fair amount about it, but there's two problems with it. The first is that it's really hard to be the kind of mom who runs from the soccer field to Gymboree to the Mandarin lesson to pick up takeout, to supervising homework, it's really hard to do that and have a good time. Mm. And I think, <laughs> no, but, <laughs> I think my kids think, well, I sent my kids an email once because I was working on this column and I said, what do you remember most about your childhood? Thinking, oh my God, I must be crazy to be doing this. And Quinn sent me back an email that said, you went a little crazy during the college process. And I was like, how can he say that? And Maria was like, oh my God, mom. <laughs> and then he said, what I remember most, having a good time. And I thought, okay, that's all we can ask of life, you know? But the other thing about this is I really worry about how scheduled our kids are because I really feel as though the long stretches of boredom that were a hallmark of my childhood are where I became a writer. I really feel like creativity grows when you're staring into the middle distance. <laughs> Mm 
And if we make no room for children to stare into the middle distance, to sit in the dirt and play with sticks, I think we lose a generation of musicians, of artists, of poets, and no society can afford to do that. Well, let's talk a little bit about your marriage. I understand you're from a mixed marriage. I am from a mixed marriage. My husband is a man and I'm a woman. Okay, can we get a, can we get a rim shot? Thank you very much. <laughs> that was a complete setup between us backstage. I thought it was such a great line. <laughs> I didn't want to resist it. But you, you talk, I mean, you've known him since you were a freshman in college. Right. So talk to us about, you know, some of the ways you've kept that relationship going strong for so long. I think the thing that you never realize about marriage when you're young is that it's family. Because family seems so antithetical to romance. I mean, what you think about when you're dating is, is your romantic life. And the idea that, that this person is going to be your next of kin, which is what I call that chapter, never occurs to you. <laughs> and yet, there's something incredibly soothing about that. If, if it works out correctly, that this is a person who shares an enormous amount of history with you, who shares that family bond with you, and it's the one family bond you have that's freely chosen. It's, it's not, a, I mean, Jerry and I aren't related by blood. We're related because we chose to be related to one another. Um, and then we created this thing out of which have emerged these three unbelievable um, human beings. And, and I, I just think there's something so powerful about that and something so difficult, too, because our society continues to feed us all of this stuff about the romantic thing. You know, you're, al you're always reading these, you know, these pieces about how, you know... The soulmate? It, oh, the soulmate, <laughs> never mind. Some woman came up to me at a reading and she goes... Thank you for saying he's not your soulmate. <laughs> <laughs> or your best friend. <laughs> I mean, I just think we put a whole lot of weight on marriage now that people didn't used to put on it. I, I mean, I don't recall my grandmother ever saying, oh, your grandfather, he's my best friend. <laughs> In fact, her best line about him ever was when the one day she said, uh, I said to her, so how did you pick Grandpa? And she said, oh, if he hadn't played the piano, I couldn't have hardly stood him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's love. <laughs> but you also say that it's important to keep a safety net of small white lies can be the bedrock of a good marriage. What, what are some of them? Those small white lies have gotten so much traction on this book tour. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think my husband needs to know what things cost. <laughs> and you keep separate finances. We do keep separate finances. And is that something that you decided on earlier, or trial and error? How did you get no, to no, that? No, no, we decided on that early. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I kept hearing that money was such an issue in so many marriages, and I made my own, and he made his own, and I just felt that separate was a better way, because at a certain point, he was going to say, this is a very large check to Saks Fifth Avenue, and, and 
and I was going to have to say, none of your damn business, and then hilarity would ensue. So it just seemed better to keep it separate. You write in your book about the decision not to drink. Now, this is frequently a narrative we hear about is, you know, the, the sad story, the sinking drinking experience or drug experience, and then it's a big life change. Everything changes. And for you, you're right, it wasn't such a big change. Well, what was behind it for you? I just didn't feel like I did well with alcohol. I, did, I really felt like in any battle between me and booze, booze was likely to win and that that was going to become um, more and more likely. And I had three little kids, and I feel like over the course of an evening having a couple of drinks People become different people at different times. You know, first they're kind of themselves, and then they're a jollier version of themselves, and then sometimes they're a more downbeat version of themselves. And then being a child is confusing enough, but, but there have to be certain eternal verities in your life. And, and your mom, being the way she generally is, ought as much as possible um, to be one of them. Um, and so one day when Maria was a baby, um, and the boys were five and three. Um, I had a Heineken beer on Easter Sunday. I put it down and thought to myself, that is the last drink I will ever have. And that was 23 years ago. And um, it was the last drink I ever had. What made you have faith that your view was different and had merit? Boy, that's a hard question because I'm not sure in the beginning that I did. I really felt in some ways when I started writing a column that I was talking to myself. And sometimes I would write a column and I would think, uh, I am in some odd little cul-de-sac of human behavior and there is nobody else out there who feels this way. And then the mail would arrive. That's, the bottom line is the mail would arrive. And all of these people, especially with life in the 30s, which was so outside the box. I mean, the New York Times had never had anything like that before. And all of this mail saying, you're writing my life, you're writing for me, you're talking about what I'm feeling. It, women have said to me since and said to me at the time, you know, I was home with a couple of little kids and you made me feel less alone. And I always say to them, right back at you. I was home with a couple of kids and knowing you were out there reading made me feel less alone. And so I guess over time, I developed a kind of a confidence that, that when I was talking to myself, there were a lot more people out there who could hear me than I had originally thought. One of the things that your mom said to you in those last months was that now you will have something to write about. And you write in the book that you felt a little bit ashamed about writing about her life and death or, or its effect on you. Why is that? Because you don't ever want to feel like the people you love most are primarily material. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've never felt that way about my kids, even though I've written about them, because, you know, I, I spend so much time with them and, and give so much to them in other ways. And I certainly don't feel that way about Jerry. But because my mother wasn't around to be part of this, and because um, I, I did connect so much with readers I, I, I'm sort of the big sister of the motherless daughter movement. Mm -hmm. And over and over again, people come up to me and say, I was 21, I was 27, I was 31. And I feel, you know, a huge responsibility about that at the same time that I think, I don't want my mother only to exist 
as a construct in my books. And, and that's why I actually really felt when I finished the chapter in this book, which is called Mortality mm. and has a great deal about her, I sort of felt like uh, I'm done with this. I'm not going to write about this anymore. I've, I've written about this as much as and in the best way I know how. And, and now it's time for my mother to get to be a person again as opposed to prose. What do you think, though, she would think of your writing and your life choices and the things that you've done? I don't think that she would give a rip about my writing. I think that she would be delighted about my children. <laughs> and I know this is a strange place to end, but I love the first sentence of this book so much. Do you mind reading it? Not us? at all. It's odd when I think of the arc of my life from child to young woman to aging adult. First I was who I was. Then I didn't know who I was. Then I invented someone and became her. Then I began to like what I'd invented. And finally I was what I was again. To be continued. (laughs) 